All right, today's scripture reading is from John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. Um, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will also be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped up with cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Thank you, Jay. Um, you guys can, well, you're already seated. Um, <laughs> the elementary kids uh, can be dismissed to Kidlands if there are any elementary kids here. Um, but first, good morning. Uh, my name is Bela Franklin. I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here, and today I have the opportunity to preach through John 11. Uh, I recently heard it said that knowledge is not what we come to church for. We come to worship, and this is more like a feast. If you were asked by a family uh, here today to join them for a cookout after the service, um, you wouldn't respond by saying, no thank you, I know what a hamburger tastes like. The knowledge of what a a hamburger tastes like does you little good if you've skipped breakfast this morning and aren't very hungry. In fact, if you're hungry, the more you think on that knowledge of how a burger tastes, the more you'll anguish over not possessing it, over not having that burger. So it is with the gospel and with worship. We can allow our minds to hear, to read, and to think on these truths, but lest we set our hearts to worship, to actually feast on these truths and the goodness therein, we will starve. So let us then together set our hearts upon the task to worship the Lord here today. As we study the word, I ask that as I I begin in prayer, that you guys would all set your hearts to pray with me, that you would pray that God would work through his spirit to allow 
us to see and delight in his truth. That during this time, we would not let things we've already heard or ideas that are not new slip over us, but that we would truly sink our teeth, our teeth into the beautiful truth of this gospel, the gospel that makes our hearts well. So please pray with me now. Jesus, I thank you uh, for this church, Lord. God, I thank you, um, as Amy prayed, Lord, just for the ways that you've uh, knit us together, Lord, for the, the encouragement that you offer us, Lord. God, I thank you that we can gather today and, and read your word, Lord, and that uh, as we, we look at these words, as we read them, as we, we sing and hear words preached, Lord, each week, that uh, the words don't just bounce off the walls and, and fall idly down to the ground, Lord, but that these words, that our worship today uh, reaches your throne. Lord, make our worship full and pleasing to you today. God, I, I pray that as difficult as it is for us and as uncomfortable as it is, that we would see the cold reality of death today, Lord. God, I ask that you would shake us from our comfort, uh, out of our confidence and our ability to draw breath. Jesus, that we would look at this text and see that you are the Lord and that you are sovereign over life and death and each breath we have is from you. And you give these breaths with a clear purpose. Lord, that we would see our impending death. Lord, as hard as that is, and that we'd see it in a way that causes us to cherish more so the enduring life that you offer. God, help us to know your will, and by your spirit, help us to do your will. God, I ask that my words today would be clear, Lord, and that they would be true, Lord, that you would let any uh, false thoughts or unhelpful ideas fall away and let your truth and your beauty and your goodness Remain in the hearts of all of us here today, Lord. God, I pray this in your name. Amen. So I have uh, truly enjoyed getting to prepare for this sermon. It's, um, it's a, a, an incredible thing to get to really dive deep into a text and have the opportunity to share what I learned with you all today. And there's so much depth in this text and uh, I'm, I'm actually hoping to really expose a lot of that, but also begin by looking back at what we saw last week. Um, so we'll look at some of the context from last week that Cameron discussed, and then we'll march through this narrative uh, verse by verse. And then lastly, we'll look at three main points of this story, three main takeaways. First, we'll see Jesus' sovereignty over his own life and death the ways in which he perfectly uses each step of his ministry to anticipate and to approach his atoning work on the cross. Second, we'll look at Jesus' sovereignty over the life and death of Lazarus, and by extension, his sovereignty over everyone in this room's life and death, and everyone in creation. He is sovereign over all. And third, we will look at the way in which this God, who is sovereign, the way that he wields this sovereignty, and how that ought to shape our days. All right, so let's get into it. On um, uh, last Sunday, uh, Cameron preached through the first section of this chapter. And if you weren't able to, to listen to it or be here, um, definitely encourage you to, to give that a listen online on our website after. 
Um, he did a great job encouraging us to not race through the first 27 verses and, uh, and jump ahead, but to fix our attention on what Jesus was saying in that earlier section. He encouraged us to see the desperation of Mary and Martha in sending for Jesus, hoping that he would save their ill-stricken brother. Encouraged us to see Jesus and his calculated decision to delay his coming to their aid and the amazing exchange between Jesus and Martha where we left off. But still, it's a hard thing for Cameron to ask that we not anticipate where this story is going. For as soon as we hear the name Lazarus, our minds immediately jump towards resurrection. The world knows what, to, what happened to this man named Lazarus 2,000 years ago. In fact, his name has been inseparably linked to the idea of resurrection, both inside and outside of the church. In the movie Interstellar, the mission to save humanity from certain death is named the Lazarus Mission. The name is referenced in countless stories, many songs, shows, movies, scientific terms utilize it, and they all are piggybacking off of the meaning given to this name, Lazarus, by that, the work that we see here, the work done by Jesus. You see, the very fact that we know Lazarus is linked with this act is a sign of, of God's work a sign that his will is being done. Because we know the purpose that Jesus outlined for this work was made clear in verse 4 when he said, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And here, 2,000 years ago, we know this name and we glorify God in knowing. So, brothers and sisters, view this as another reminder that God is Lord, that he is Lord and his will is being done. And if, it wills, uh, if he wills us to grow in deeper understanding of this story today, let that be done. So now, again, I want us to be sure to have our feet set in that context from last week so we can more fully understand what is going on here in the culmination, not of the whole chapter, but of this specific resurrection story. There are three things I want us to hold on to. First, the happenings of these verses are tied to the seminal events in the approaching Holy Week. As Cameron pointed out, Jesus had moved away from Judea, away from Jerusalem, because the Jews in power there were actively seeking to put him to death. Jesus knew that the embers of loathing, fear, and jealousy that were sparked by his presence and work in Jerusalem and his words, that those would remain, and that those embers would eventually be stoked into a flame of hatred that would lead to his unjust persecution and ultimately his death on the cross. He had already foretold of his approaching death, but Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. He had withdrawn from the hostility of the Jews in accordance with the Father's will. But now, in this chapter, Jesus has left the relative safety um, of, of uh, being across the Jordan River to join Martha and Mary and the now-deceased Lazarus just two miles outside of Jerusalem. He surely knew there was danger in going. Second, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus intentionally delayed his coming to this town. Hearing from a messenger that Lazarus was sick, and even omnisciently knowing that he had died, Jesus still delayed his coming. 
He did this not because of the family's proximity to the Pharisees and fear of persecution, but for a far greater purpose. And we'll look at that purpose later on. Third, uh, I want us to, to remember from last week that Jesus loved this family. Mary and Martha pop up in different places throughout the Gospels, and we know that Jesus loved them. As for Lazarus, the messenger's call for Jesus to bring healing doesn't even mention him by name, but instead refers to him as he whom you love. And while Jesus did delay, not coming as, as soon as he heard Lazarus was sick, he did ultimately come to them. He was met on the outskirts of the town by Martha, and despite her initially unfaithful tone, Jesus graciously calls Martha into a reminding proclamation of who Jesus is. He helps her to remember and to to proclaim that he is the Son of God, that he has authority over life and death. So here we come to, with that context, come to our text today. And first we're going to look at verses 28 through 31, if you would read with me. beginning at 28, when she, this is Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in her house, consoling her, saw Mary uh, rise and go quickly out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Martha goes from Jesus and and tells Mary, her sister, that the teacher is here. And this may seem like an inconsequential uh, facet of the the story, but at the time, Jewish custom would not allow for women to sit under a rabbi or a teacher. The fact that these women are prominently featured in the Gospels as followers of Jesus and influential ones even, Um, is yet another beautiful example of Jesus' drawing all people to himself and subverting the standards of the Pharisees. Mary's response to Martha's calling is immediate. She wastes no time. It even indicates that before even standing up, she was moving forward towards Jesus. She She was moving with a purpose to get to Jesus. It's unclear why Jesus remained on the outskirts of the town, instead of coming into their home. Some say it could be an attempt to keep a low profile to avoid being captured. Some think, given what we know of Martha, that she may have had um, some insistence that he uh, stay on the outskirts trying to protect Jesus by meeting him outside of the town and going to to Mary in private. And others wonder if uh, it might simply be that the outskirts would be closer to where the tomb might be. But regardless, we see that a crowd is formed and a crowd follows, assuming she's going directly to Lazarus' tomb to weep. But who was in this crowd? Mourning uh, during this time was in many, ways, in many ways a regimented affair in Jewish culture. It uh, was possible that some of these people in the crowd were friends of the family. Some of them might have known Lazarus or the sisters, but it's almost certain that amongst this group were professional mourners, those who would obtain a wage for participating in outward displays of lament during a period of mourning. So this is the the crowd that's coming. And if you would look with me at verse uh, 32, when Mary finds Jesus. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's hard to ignore that these words here, as spoken by Mary, are identical to the words shared by Martha just a few verses before, 10 verses before in, in verse 21. Both women immediately put the death of their brother on Jesus. Mary, as, she knows, as she's known to, does so in a, a more dramatic way than Martha. She says this in front of the whole crowd, where she is the primary focus. Now, it, it's absolutely right for Martha and Mary to come to Jesus and know that he could have saved the brother. That's absolutely right and within his power and good for them to trust in that. But that's not exactly what they say. They say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They commit two clear sins in their declaration. First, they assume a limit to Christ's power, stating that he would have had to be present to save Lazarus. And we know from the word uh, that he has worked to heal others from a distance already. We see in John John chapter 4 that he heals a deathly ill boy from afar. And as close followers, it makes sense that Mary and Martha would have known this already. So they, they don't ascribe to him the full weight of power that they know he holds. And second, uh, the, the more arrogant part of their statement is this. They assume to know and maybe even have control over Jesus' will. Both women say, had he been there, he would have saved them, saved him. How do they know? How do they know that's what Jesus would have done had he been there? The God of the universe does not promise to do our bidding. And we can see that it is the height of arrogance to adopt a posture of assumption before the Lord. But please also, while while I think those errors are present, please do notice the posture of Mary towards Jesus. She falls at his feet. Do not neglect to see that. She places herself at the feet of Jesus. Just as we saw with Martha, Jesus does not respond with wrath to the missteps of a mourning woman. And this is much like our worship and acts of service in the kingdom. They are imperfect and tainted by our flesh, tainted by our assumptions. We cannot worship God perfectly today. But if we are ever set to be falling at the feet of Jesus... In laying at his feet, he is merciful and gracious to receive us, even in our imperfect worship. So look uh, now at verses uh, 33 and 34. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So given the context here uh, and seeing others weeping, we read the portion describing Jesus that says he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And it's easy to just assume that he's uh, in a way just falling in line with the mourning that he's observing of the others there. But this is not an accurate assumption. There's so much more to this than what we pick up at first glance. Throughout this chapter, it appears that the attitudes of the two sisters and the crowd are consistently juxtaposed with Jesus' demeanor. 
First, uh, we see the word for weeping used to describe Mary and the crowd is not fully synonymous with crying. It's actually a bit more extreme. It connotes uh, or implies a loud display of wailing and dramatic physical uh, displays of lament. That is what Mary and the crowd were doing. They weren't simply crying. They were, they were very outward and boisterous in their lament. Then uh, if we look at the word used, uh, which, which is translated here, deeply moved, uh, this is describing Jesus, and that has a very different tone in the opposite direction than what we might first expect. It translates in a few ways, but essentially means to be moved with anger, to admonish sternly, or even to snort as a horse snorts. We don't live in an agrarian culture, so that's a little bit foreign, but think of a, a great big animal snorting. It's a, an inward and deep and heavy emotion. It's a, a gut-wrenching experience, but more controlled and inward than what we see amongst the others. This word um, occurs three times outside of this chapter, and elsewhere it's translated sternly warned twice and scolding the third time. You could blame the over-sentimentality of our world for us having drifted from the original understanding of what these two expressions mean, but it's clear there is something heavier about Jesus' response than what we assume, and that John seems to contrast it with the expressions of the crowd. But what was it that moved in such a deep and serious way within Jesus? What caused him to be troubled? Was it the loss of his friend? Was it the response to, uh, his response to the outward and potentially showy display of mourning being put on by those present? Was he feeling this way towards the broader reality of death and decay in this broken world? A world in which Jesus, we know, spoke into a perfect existence at the beginning. Or was it something else? I definitely encourage you guys just to take time this week considering this passage and all of the amazingly complex realities of Jesus being God made flesh and him interacting with the world and, and bearing, um, bearing emotion in a sinless way. It's an amazing thing. We'll never fully grasp it here, but it's a worthwhile task to worship him in exploring that. Verse 34, uh, Jesus asks where Lazarus has been, uh, been laid, and they, either Mary, Martha, or the crowd, lead him to the tomb. So look now at verse 35. It says, Jesus wept. Brothers and sisters, let's just take a moment to, re to revel in the reality and marvel that God himself became a man that Jesus walked the earth fully God and fully man. He felt emotion, he felt joy and laughter, anger, and here we see sadness. He did so as a truly sinless and perfect being. And we can in, uh, consider and explore that uh, for our whole lives. And, and again, it's, it's just a beautiful thing for us to remember uh, that he is Lord He's perfect and he was human and he can relate to us, which is just, I, I forget that and I need that reminder. So Jesus wept. And while being uh, probably the easiest verse to memorize in the Bible, uh, verse 35 is an absolutely incredible piece of the story of what we know of Jesus. 
Again, we must not assume that we uh, know all that is behind the Lord of the universe's emotion here, but we are given some framework. Jesus knew that this was not the end of Lazarus. He knew that he would be raised again. He had already foretold it. He knew he had the power to raise him from the dead, and he knew that it was within the Father's will to do so in what seems like only a, a few minutes later. Yet he wept. Why? Nowhere else in the Bible can you find the word used by John to describe Jesus' emotion here. Nowhere else in the whole Bible. All the mentions of of weeping and, and having wept are different words. This one is unique. And this word also stands in contrast to the showy wailing of the crowds. The term certainly does imply sadness, that's for sure but would more closely resemble uh, shedding a tear, not succumbing to fierce wailing. Jesus does not mourn here like the others, but there was an instance where he did weep in that same term, in that same usage of the word that the others are weeping. He weeps in that way. Uh, You can see if you turn to uh, Luke 19.41, if you turn in your Bibles to read that with me. This is when Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem a city that claimed to be for God and to be, uh, claimed to be his people. But in reality, this city was lost in rebellion and treachery and cruelty. Read with me beginning in Luke 19.41. So this is Jesus as he's drawing near to Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is what causes Jesus to weep, to sob, thinking of Jerusalem. And he he laments further, um, earlier actually in Luke 13 over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus does not mourn those who belong to him. He he perfects them, and he receives them into his glory. Lazarus falls in that camp. But Jesus does, however, mourn those who turn away from him, who spurn his mercy and his instruction and his grace. That picture that's used of a hen gathering her chicks, and they would not come. Our God is beautiful and he's nurturing and he is fierce and he's just. And we should run to him. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So later in the epistles we read that there's a, a difference in how we mourn those who trust in Jesus. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. 
The hope of redemption in Jesus is so great that extreme wailing seems to be out of place if Christ is present. And so it is in the funeral of a believer. We are not to grieve as those who do not have hope. We have a sure hope, and this must be kept foremost in our hearts and our minds, even at the great divide. Brianna's grandmother recently died, and um, she was a woman who faithfully and joyfully served the Lord. And we certainly have sadness uh, in seeing her life end, but the joy is so much greater. In losing her, um, we've had much joy knowing that the work of Christ that he began over 30 years ago is now complete. With this certain and true hope, joy envelops the sadness. It is a wholly different kind of weeping. So look now um, back in, in John 11 at verses 36 through 38. We see two distinct responses to Jesus from the crowd. So read, uh, so the Jews said, in response to his weeping, uh, the Jews said, so how, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. You see, the first group sees the authentic love in Jesus' tear, and whether or not they're correct in assuming its meaning, they acknowledge his love for Lazarus. But that second group that's mentioned responds in a way very much so like uh, Martha and Mary's initial responses to Jesus. They question him. They doubt his goodness, and they essentially say, if he loved this guy so much, why didn't he save him? To this, we see Jesus again respond with that strong and troubled emotion. The words are the same. And exactly as before, when um, he's he's responding to this exactly as he was before, when he responded to the loud wailing and the showy uh, lament. So look now at verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? First, uh, Jesus is about to raise a dead man. He's about to bring him to life. And he could easily remove the stone with but a word. Yet he instructs others to do what they can in the process. You do what you can do. I'll raise the dead. This is characteristic of how the Spirit brings about sanctification within us. He he will instruct us and convict us by his word, spirit, and the church. And then he calls us to action as he makes us new. Now in these verses we see another episode of Martha's teeter-totter from faithfulness to doubt and back and forth. Martha here, after confessing that he is Lord and has power over death, hearing him tell her that her brother will live, she still stands in his way, giving a base reason to not open the tomb. In older translations, this objection is, uh, is translated, Lord, he already stinketh. 
But how, how much so can you identify with Martha in this? Lord, I believe you can do this incredible thing. We literally believe that you will raise us to new life. But I don't want my comforts threatened. I don't want a stench to offend my nose. It stinks too much. It feels hard to do. I'm tired. We let that get in the way of witnessing God's glory. This brings to mind, uh, Martha's struggle brings to mind Romans 7.15. It says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We must be at constant war with our flesh, submitting ourselves to Christ, trusting him more. Again, here, uh, Jesus is patient to remind her of his promises. And it's important not to distort what he says here. He is not saying that if you believe, then the miracle will happen. The miracle is going to happen. Lazarus will be raised from the dead. But instead, he's saying that, uh, that if you believe, only believers will see the significance. Only believers will see the glory of God in this miracle. Non-believers will simply see a trick. Only believers will see the glory of God. Likewise, uh, today, non-believers will look on a life transformed, a heart redeemed, and turned towards the Lord and say, hey, good for them, they got their act together. A believer will look at that same person, that new brother converted to Christ, and see the glory of God making all things new. Our belief allows us to see his glory. So in verses 41 through 44, the the last chunk here, um, if you would read with me, 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now John's uh, gospel begins um, at the, the very start of the book. It says, in the beginning was the word explaining to us that Jesus is the word made flesh. Here, we see the power of his word. It is the power of Jesus' word that brings life. The power of his word that can take rotting, putrid flesh, flesh that by all uh, earthly wisdom would stink, would smell bad at this point, and he makes it whole. It is his word that will take you and I and restore us into what we were meant to be. To peel away the fear and the pain and the anger and the shame and the lust and the lies and the greed and selfishness and make us radiant reflections of his goodness. So with only a word, he commands life. This is who we worship today. We worship Jesus who is sovereign over his own death. In going to Lazarus, Lazarus, Jesus intentionally drew a crowd to witness a miracle greater than any he had done to this point. 
he drew a crowd to declare in action and in word that he was the Messiah. Knowing that some with him would not believe, that some would bring news of this to the Pharisees hoping to destroy him, they would respond to this beautiful act of grace and mercy and bringing new life and seek to destroy him. He knew that. He knew that all of history was marching towards that moment when he would offer the ultimate sacrifice. Everything in his life was oriented to keeping that appointment on the cross. He knew this while offending the right people and calling the right people, even in selecting Judas to walk with him, who would later betray him. He was so sovereign over his life. He was in control of his life in ways that none of us are. And he submitted that fully so that we might believe and have hope in him. So in this, we also see that Jesus is sovereign over the lives and deaths of others. And he bends the lives of others to his will, allowing the life to drain from his friend Lazarus. We saw Jesus wait. He knew there was need, but he waited. And he was able to call him to life again with only a word. Are you comfortable with that reality? That our lives are not our own, but that Jesus, in fact, has authority to set the day and the time when we will die and to bring us to new life. Jesus explicitly tells us that he was knowingly letting Lazarus die so that others would believe and so that God would be glorified. And Lazarus, he he soon resurrected. But Jesus had other friends. By this time, John the Baptist, who Jesus held in high esteem, Jesus loved, he had been beheaded. Yet Jesus did not see fit to spare him or to raise him. Not yet, at least. John the Baptist's resurrection will be on the same day as mine and the same day as yours. In that moment, it will be glorious. But until that day, he is giving us breath. In this day, he gives us breath. In this moment, he gives us breath. What ought we do with that? He does not give out life callously or carelessly. He has a purpose for each one of these breaths. How do you submit the things that he lays before you? Do you scrounge them together as a child reaching for the toys that are being enjoyed by other children? Not enjoying them themselves, not enjoying them yourselves, but just simply reaching to steal something, to have it, to possess it. What are the responsibilities, the gifts, the relationships, the moments that he puts before you, that he entrusts to you? Your spouse, your singleness, your job, your children, your parents, your pain, your vote, your income, your time, and your leisure. If God is sovereign over death, he is certainly sovereign over those things. Before we close, uh, there is one application that I think is worth sharing. Um, 
And I, I know we're only weeks away from uh, what every four years they tell us is the most important election of our time. Just like how each new iPhone is the best one yet. And of course, there's never a better time to buy a Toyota. But this is surely a tumultuous season for our country. Despite all the hype, it, it truly is a, a high stakes time. And there are so many voices at play. And I've recently seen something repeated as Christian wisdom that I think, if not fleshed out, could actually be quite dangerous. I've seen people saying, uh, you shouldn't ever say, quote, Christians can't vote for candidate A or B. It's absolutely true that our voting record will not get us into heaven. Praise God that our salvation rests on nothing of our own works. But the way we vote is in no way exempt from submission to God. And the principles he calls us to in his word and the conviction of his spirit. Now, I'm not telling you what that is right now. I'm not, I'm not saying that means Christian must vote for X, but we must submit that decision to Christ. He may lead you to have a clear conscience to vote for candidate, a candidate who uh, is unpalatable in many ways. Uh, And the fact is, uh, there's little reason to believe that either of the main candidates today follow Jesus as Lord. But he might give you, by reason of the word and spirit, a clear conscience in voting for one. Or it might lead you to vote for a third-party candidate who honors truth and justice and actually has a servant heart. Or it might even lead you to abstain from voting altogether. The Bible doesn't say one or the other specifically. I'm certainly not advocating for a specific candidate here, but I am advocating that we not divorce this decision from the reign of King Jesus. Instead, I'm urging you to seek out the areas which, uh, in which you rest and, and, and resist submitting to prayer and guidance in the word. He is sovereign over all. What things do you not want to submit to him? What things do you want to rest on your own judgment, your own wisdom, or that of the world? He's gathering all those things to himself. He is sovereign over all, and our joy is in drawing near to him and to the life that he abundantly gives. All glory be to Christ. Pray with me now. Jesus, you... um, Lord, you are good to, to give us this story, Lord, to, to give us your words here. Um, Lord, that you, um, you display your sovereignty, Lord, and that you display that you have power over each thing, that you have power to give us the things that we desire, Lord, um, but that you are, are better than to just give us what we want, Lord. You give us life. You are not about our happiness alone, but you are are about your glory and in drawing us to delight in you. God, we, um, I think all of us can look back on a season when we we desired something greatly, when we wanted something, and you did not give it, Lord. And we can look back and see that had we gotten what we thought we wanted, we would have faced destruction, Lord. We would have drifted. Lord, you are good. You are worthy of our trust because with your sovereignty, 
Lord, you, you did not serve yourself, Lord, but you served others. You served us. You laid down your life on the cross to atone for our sins, Lord. We pray that we see that. pray that you use this body to, to draw us closer and closer to you, that we be bold in, in calling our brothers and sisters to, to honor you and to submit to you. pray this in your name.